Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of Picar & Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the U.S. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app to make sure that you're getting updated with future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the litigation section of the American Bar Association. It's where I make my home in the ABA. The litigation section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org litigation. On today's episode, we're going to shed light on the often unspoken challenges that litigators face. Jason Ward, a former lawyer who made the difficult decision to retire from the profession, will share his journey of navigating mental health struggles and ultimately finding a path to recovery. Jason's story is a poignant reminder that behind the courtroom dramas and legal triumphs, our lives are profoundly impacted by the demands and pressures of the litigation world. We'll explore the personal toll that led Jason to leave the law, the role of substance abuse in his journey, and the critical issue of mental health within the legal profession. Join us as we delve into this candid conversation and seek to shed light on the importance of prioritizing well-being in the legal profession. In 2003, Jason founded Ward's Lawyers PC, a full-service firm in Ontario, Canada. Shortly after he founded the firm, his wife, Carissa, left her position as a business lawyer at the firm to join Jason to build their own firm together, which today is one of the largest firms in central Ontario. In 2021, Jason was designated as a certified specialist in civil litigation. He practiced civil litigation generally, and particularly family law, estate disputes, and employment law. And in early 2022, after more than 20 years, Jason retired from the practice of law. Jason, welcome to the show. Dave, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Well, let's start from the very beginning and talk about uh, what your practice was like before you left the law. I had, as you said, strictly a litigation practice, and that involved an amalgam of practice areas, including commercial disputes. And I had a very bustling practice. Probably in my peak period, I was billing north of about 1.5 million with a fairly healthy slate of clients. And I owned uh, a law firm that at that time employed 11 lawyers, including myself. As you mentioned, my wife is a business lawyer who is also one of the members of my firm. And I had, uh, frankly, everything going for me. I'd written a book, a legal book that had been published. As you mentioned, the law, the governing body of lawyers in Ontario designated me as a specialist in litigation. I had many accolades and rewards uh, from my municipality, uh, Chamber of Commerce. And, you know, I was able to, in my view, be uh, not only a good lawyer dedicated to sort of a high standard of, of excellence, but I was also very effective at the marketing promotion of my business. So unlike many lawyers who, who may be excellent lawyers, but lacking on the business skills side of thing, I was able to effectively do both. And I think that contributed greatly to the success I enjoyed. Now, Jason, did you start up as a solo practitioner when you founded your firm? I did. Uh, you know, I started my career uh, in a place called Bay Street in Toronto, which is the equivalent of, of your Wall Street, for example, in New York. It's, it's the legal hub of Canada uh, in downtown Toronto. And I carried the bags of, of some very well-known Canadian litigators and learned from the best. I ended up departing that culture after about three years, realizing I, it just wasn't for me after doing fairly high-end price-fixing and class-action type cases. And I ran for politics 
politics. Uh, I ran in a race that would be the equivalent of a state representative uh, in most of the United States, and I lost that. And shortly afterward, I moved to my hometown and opened a law firm, uh, just me exclusively uh, initially. And you kind of did what I think a lot of lawyers would like to say that they did, which is start a law practice by themselves and then build it up to something huge. And so you were a very you know, successful lawyer. So let's talk about kind of uh, where your struggles came in um, as a litigator. Well, I think, I think they started to materialize in my life over time. But in terms of pinpointing uh, a period of my life where I really took notice of it, it would have been about age 45. And by this time, I was uh, doing very well uh, as a lawyer and as a business person locally. And I had not had a history of alcohol use in my life. I was a very social, unoccasional drinker. Uh, If I drank four to five times in a year, uh, maybe. I I had never done drugs or experimented with drugs in my life up to that point. And at age 45, something in me just snapped. And the circumstances were I was, you know, enjoying the Port of Ayala Sun with my family playing euchre at a, at a table on the beach. And my wife ordered me a rum and coke. And that turned into about 12 drinks that day. And for the balance of that vacation, uh, I just drank constantly. And this was, you know, after a long period of, of very rarely drinking at all. And the way I describe it is it was just an ultimate release for me. It was like manna from heaven. For some reason, all of the stresses and turmoil that I was feeling just evaporated. You know, I was no longer holding my phone 24 hours a day. I stopped bringing my laptop to the beach on that vacation to constantly be on it. My rules of practice, for example, I had an unwritten rule that if if you contacted me, it would be very rare that you didn't hear back from me within one hour, whether you were a client, other counsel, or whomever. My other rule was that I would rarely leave my office in the day until my inbox was empty. And that signaled in my head that I had done a good job that day and I could go home. Those types of things just were gone all of a sudden. And I felt such relief. I eventually started drinking on vacation all of the time. I took three to four vacations annually, mostly with my family. And of course, the drinking ended up following me home eventually. So I'd start drinking at home. I generally didn't drink during the workday. I was usually fairly good at remaining sober until about three or four o'clock. And my day started to end much earlier, mostly so I could go home and drink. And that sort of uh, spilled over for the next two to three years in my mid to late 40s. And can you talk about how the use of substances affected your physical and mental health as well as kind of your relationships because you were practicing with your wife? Yeah, that's true. Um, My wife is incredibly supportive and understanding and has been throughout my ordeal. I followed a very strict regimen for two reasons. One is I tried to conceal what I was doing from my colleagues and from the public generally. And also I wasn't about to compromise the appearance I held out there as a successful litigator. So when I was 
uh, drinking quite a bit over those several years. Uh, my day would be 4 a.m. up in the morning. I would work out for three hours in a home gym I had built until I was shiny and new. I would then deal with my kids, get them up, get them to school. Uh, I always thought it was important to dress well uh, as a litigator, and I did so. And then when I got to work, uh, I worked incredibly hard uh, and intensely throughout the day. But when I got home, I drank like I worked. Uh, extremely aggressively and, and intensely. And that, that routine until bedtime at about 9 or 9.30, uh, when I'd often forget the night before, just repeated itself on an endless cycle. And so what kind of toll did that take, uh, that practice take on, on your relationships? It generally eroded everything, including my relationships, my close personal relationships. Now, unfortunately, I have a group of friends from, uh, that I've maintained for many, many years, and alcohol is an issue in my, in my circle of friends. So that really fueled my fire as well. My relationship with my wife became strained, obviously. Although we were very communicative about what I was experiencing, I wasn't stopping. And I made efforts to gaslight her along the way, usually unsuccessfully because she's much smarter than I am. But certainly I, I, I became manipulative, very secretive. And to give you a sense of the volume that I ended up drinking, uh, was, you know, there's a wonderful Italian restaurant in my town and I happen to know the owner who's a wonderful man. And every, every Monday he would deliver to my home clandestinely to my back, my backyard, uh, a full box of 24 bottles of red wine. And every Monday I would need him to come in and drop off another box to me. And that was in addition to starting off with three or four rum and Cokes uh, at three or four whenever I got home that day. And I did that for probably two to three years at that volume. And I became, my weight dropped. I, you know, I'm six foot two. Uh, in my peak drinking period, I was down to about 185 pounds. And the whole thing, my pallor went bad. I became very intolerant of people. My, my patience with others started to wane to the point where I really couldn't manage that anymore. And I found myself reacting to situations and not approaching problems constructively like litigators need to do. So that was a real challenge for me as well. My patience for my colleagues and other lawyers became very... I, I don't want to say hostile, but I was hostile towards them. So it became, it got to the point for me where every, every other lawyer I dealt with presumptively was my enemy, not my friend. And I had to do everything I could to win the case. And that, that mentality grew in me over my practice years to the point where I was just so competitive and, and so fixated on the pursuit of excellence that it got entirely out of control for me. And I, I think alcohol at some point gave me that escape hatch from that terrible submarine that I found myself in uh, at these deep, deep depths. So what happened next in terms of uh, your journey here? You have this addiction that's affecting your career. What was the kind of tipping point to decide to, I don't know, get better, get treatment? What, 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 what's the next part of your story? In late 2020, I retired from the firm, but two years prior to that, I decided to stop drinking. And, and I was sober for about a year and a half, but I continued to practice. And rather than modify my behavior, I turned it up a notch in that brief period of sobriety. I worked even harder and more intensely. 
and found that rather than mitigating my symptoms and what I was experiencing, I was, I was worsening them, albeit soberly. And it got to the point where I couldn't even, I couldn't even be at work. I would sit in my, my F-150 pickup truck in the morning and sit outside in the parking lot, staring at the doors, you know, the glass doors with my name on them. And I'd have to sit there for an hour working myself up to whatever I needed to walk into that office and, and do my day. And that just became my uh, everyday experience. You know, eventually I went to my wife and, and some of my colleagues and said, I, I can't do this anymore. I have to leave and I have to leave now. And I did so abruptly. I made calls to clients. Uh, I made some other arrangements. But I, when I decided that I had to leave, I was gone within a matter of weeks. And the problem that I experienced at that point in time is while I was sober from alcohol, I couldn't, I couldn't continue without some mind-altering experience. I needed that numbness. I needed that feeling of release and escape. I just couldn't be at work and continue to do my job in this conflict of culture that litigators face every day without having that release. And so I started experimenting with drugs. And it was innocuous at first, fairly innocent, you know, gummies that you buy online on your Facebook feed or whatever. You know, it started with a couple of those a day and that escalated. And over about a six month period, while it takes most people about 10 to 20 milligrams of THC, the active ingredient in marijuana, to be moderately high for an evening, after six months, I'd be walking around with two pockets full of pills. Uh, I had started ordering custom THC pills, which were just concentrated THC, 20 milligrams per pill. And I was probably taking around 150 to 200 milligrams of THC a day to the point that I also couldn't remember the night before as a result of using THC. And that went on for some time, about six to eight months. And again, my wife was aware of what was going on, but not to the extent, because that's when I became really secretive about how much drugs I was buying. And, you know, I would, I would feel so badly about it. I would drive an hour away because, as you may know, cannabis was recently legalized, recently legalized in Canada. And we have dispensaries all over the place now. And I would drive an hour away to other towns just so my local dispensers wouldn't observe how many pills I was buying every single day. Uh, that's, that's the length and extent of, of how much um, I was using it and how important it was to me. And I would just be high every day. Starting earlier, starting at one or two o'clock, I'd start popping my pills two at a time and I would just keep going and keep going and keep going until I felt that ultimate release from what I was feeling at work. Uh, eventually, I started to covet more stronger drugs. Uh, I found myself out looking for, you know, powder drugs and other stronger drugs that I knew of that I could find access to. And it's, it's at that point where I, I realized to myself, if I stay on this pathway, I'm going to die because I won't be able to control that either. And so I made the decision to go to rehab. And I attended a wonderful immersive rehab facility in Montreal, Canada. Uh, I went in on a 30-day ticket. I was uh, one of six graduates of a class of 20, I think, that went in. And since rehab, and that would have been mid-last year, I've been clean and sober. So I haven't used alcohol or drugs since that successful attendance of rehab last year. That's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So 
take us back to kind of your decision to leave the practice. You said that you had this kind of abrupt meeting with your partners and uh, told your wife and your clients. What, what was the reaction from those folks? I think surprise generally. I don't think my colleagues, and, and, and I was very good at deceiving others. I realized that how manipulative I truly was in those years. I don't think I realized how bad it was at the time, but in hindsight, I do. The efforts and the extent to, to which I would go to conceal what I was doing and what was really going on with me and how I was feeling. Of course, there were signs. And when I disclosed this to others, you know, it, they too looked in hindsight and probably started to put together some of the signs in understanding what was going on. But here I was at the pinnacle of my career, 50 years old. I reasonably had everything, you know, a lawyer would want in life. I had a wonderful family. I owned a large law firm. You know, I'd accumulated wealth because of my practice. I had uh, a great practice. I had lots of legal accolades. You know, other than becoming a judge, I had really sort of uh, climbed up the legal ladder, so to speak. And here I was abruptly telling my colleagues at work that, you know, I'm out of here. I'm 50. I'm gone. I can't do this anymore. And I think that shocked them as well. Yeah, I bet. And, you know, leaving the practice must have been a very difficult decision. And I wonder, I mean, so many of us have our identity kind of wrapped up into being a lawyer. And so how do you kind of you know, at the time, and how, how have you gone f- going forward, reconciled maybe a sense of loss with your need to prioritize your well-being? Well, it's interesting you say that, Dave. I did experience a grieving process. Uh, I've had a lot of guilt over leaving the profession and leaving my business, not necessarily from a financial perspective, but from the perspective of, you know, I was employing 35 people at the time, and I, I you know, really let, let everyone dangle high and dry uh, in order to try to recoup and transition after my departure. And, you know, I, I, I still feel guilt about that. But the way I reconcile that is I didn't have a choice to leave. I realize now and that was not within my power to stay. I had spent before leaving to give you a sense of the investment I made in trying to continue to be a lawyer is I had worked with a psychiatrist from Toronto three times a week, 45 minute sessions for a full year, trying to uh, derive a way that I could continue to practice law and stay in my job. And and she and I did that for a year prior to me departing. And I, I just couldn't get there. You know, I, I, I couldn't find a way to stay. I, I knew no matter what, I just couldn't sit in this chair anymore. I couldn't look at those three computer screens anymore. I couldn't talk to my colleagues anymore. And I started to have what I think is, is, is equivalent. I'm, I'm not a medical doctor, but I, it, you know, equivalent to PTSD is that, you know, even today when I, when I see a client on the street or when I drive by a particular property that I might've litigated over, I still have that shock of, of stress and anxiety that comes from my professional life when I was doing it. So it's a lingering, ongoing issue for me. And can, can you tell us, you know, what you think the point was or, or the things about being a litigator that kind of drove you to having these issues? Was it, you know, the, the competitive nature, the, the billings or, or dealing with conflict? Or what, what are some of the things that kind of you think drove you to, to that state? Well, I've done a lot. It's an excellent question. I've done a lot of reflection on it. I think to myself, imagine this. As a litigator, you wake up in the morning and you face conflict and turmoil and stress. And that goes on fairly intensely all throughout your day until you go to bed. And it's 
surrounded or enveloped in high expectations, whether it's from other counsel or clients as a litigator from whomever. And can you imagine that conflict that that breeds in the day for lawyer, for litigators. And it's there all the time and intense. And you do that for 20 years. And I don't think lawyers, particularly litigators, appreciate how that changes your blueprint, how it changes you as a person. And for me, it was a confluence of, of a perfect storm. It was, I am a highly competitive, overachieving person, much like other lawyers that I know and and those who get into the litigation practice. I did have high business goals as well as my legal goals. I did strive for a high standard of excellence in my profession. You know, every everything had to look the same that leave my firm. It, there could never be spelling mistakes. I would read junior lawyers' works, you know, three times over and use track changes three times until it was perfect. And that's just the the type of person that I evolved to. And I don't think as a young person, I had that competitive nature in me. I don't think I was so focused on uh, self-promotion and making sure I was the best at everything I did growing up. I think that became a part of my blueprint as I began in this profession and as I developed both my business and my practice. I mean, it's interesting that you kind of discuss that. And I see in myself, and I'm sure a lot of litigators see in themselves, you know, part of, of what you're what you're talking about, the competitive nature, the stress, the striving for success always. So, you know, let's turn it turn the conversation a little bit to, you know, what we can do and perhaps maybe some a journey towards some solutions. So let's say that you know, you're, you're talking to a, a little bit younger lawyer, but somebody who's on the same path as, as you were then. What advice or guidance might you give them? Well, I, I think I would pull a young lawyer's side. And I, you know, I'm doing that now with young lawyers hired at my firm, or I'm speaking to law students in law schools now, and pull them aside and just you know, talk about mental health because when I went through the process, the the legal education system, and in my early years at, you know, the big law firm, uh, no one ever pulled me aside and said anything about mental health. No one said to me, in your pursuit of excellence, don't lay your mental health to waste, which is exactly what it, mental health was the last thing I cared about over that 20 year period. All I cared about was achieving my goals. No one ever told me I should be thinking about you know, be careful here or manage this better because this will catch up to you. Uh, and I wish they had because it was not on my radar. You know, the, the harder I worked, the more praise I got, both at work from other lawyers and from my family. So in fact, it was, you know, the corollary was true is that you had to invest more into this profession and doing well in order to be better. And I was, you know, it was actually making me worse off as I went along, even though my appearance outwardly seemed to be getting better. You know, it's weird because in our, in the section of litigation for the American Bar Association, we do talk a lot about mental health. We have a mental health and wellness task force. And, you know, we certainly give a lot of advice to lawyers. On the other hand, you know, the, the, Bar Association and certainly I think law firms generally, just like you said, are, are, you know, want their lawyers to succeed and not only succeed, but make, you know, a lot of money for their law firms. So there is kind of that, that conflict, I think, between the, the two. And it's something that I think is, is 
is hard to reconcile for uh, for certain. And it's uh, stories like yours that I hope will tip the point uh, to allow us to have further conversations and maybe look at some solutions here. A hundred percent. And it's, it's, you know, in my experience, at least in Canada, and I'm sure it's, it's the same uh, south of the border is that it's pervasive. I mean, I, I saw it and observed it with my own eyes in my profession. I saw lawyers suffering from issues. I don't think they'd identified them or they realized the extent of it. But, you know, as I reflect, alcoholism is the best kept secret in our profession, in my view. Uh, and the regulatory body, at least that I am a member of, is silent on this. There are mental health initiatives. There are great people, great lawyers who are getting involved and trying to make a difference. But overall, uh, this is uh, an area that is incredibly under-talked about and underserviced, at least in my jurisdiction. So let's talk a little bit about the support system uh, for lawyers. You know, let's assume that you have somebody, you're, you're a lawyer who sees somebody who you think might have a problem. What kind of advice would you give to that person? Because, I mean, you've been in, been in the situation where you've, you know, had the addiction and went through uh, this journey. Would it have been helpful for someone to uh, reach out to you at the time, either, you know, before you started the addiction, just kind of looking at the, you know, type A personality qualities, uh, but then also kind of once they may have seen that you were getting into some trouble. Yeah, absolutely. And and the unique part about our profession is when I placed a call to, for example, an employee assistance program that I had set up through my firm, or even my governing body uh, has in place, you know, a member assistance program, I was on the phone with, you know, psychotherapists or counselors or social workers, none of whom had any knowledge or, or experience in the legal field. And, you know, I, I found that very challenging because when you're, especially when you're a litigator sitting at your desk and you look at your calendar, you know, you don't have the ability to say, you know, you can't deal with that motion on Friday. That That's not an option. So what would have been extremely helpful to me as I went through this process is to be able to have access to another litigator, not for therapeutic reasons, not to treat my mental health, but to work with me on, okay, you've got to go get some help from these other professionals. Here's how we're going to manage your practice over the next week to give you some time to do that. And then we're going to do this for the week following, because really it's only litigators who know how to do that to another litigator's schedule. And that's a resource that is completely absent where I am. And I had to navigate this all on my own effectively. And fortunately for me, I had some resources available to me to do that. I, you know, I had to pay for a sober coach. I had to pay for a psychiatrist. Uh, I pay for my ongoing psychotherapy. Uh, I get some benefits through a, a work benefit program now, but, you know, I, I, all the people out there that may not have those resources available to them helps beyond their reach. And for me, I really needed more than a general member assistance program where I was dealing with mental health professionals, but most of whom had no idea what I was explaining to them in terms of, no, you don't understand. I've got these three things that have to be done by Thursday. There's no, you know, I don't have a choice there. Got it. And are there any other kind of solutions or things that you wish had gone differently? And I'm sure there are many uh, that we haven't talked about already. 
Well, I mean, from a, a larger scale, I, I'm, a, I'm a proponent of uh, wellness policies in workplaces. I believe strongly that the key to making changes is at the firm level, particularly the mid to large size firms. I think they have to have uh, a designated first uh, uh, mental health first aid officer who's independent of management, who has training in mental health and who can help identify problems with lawyers and help steer them in the right direction to the resources they need. So there's a lot of things that I think we could be exploring that at least where I am, we're not exploring. I know the ABA and Americans are much more advanced in this than Canadians. We're a bit behind on uh, making this a discussion point and talking about strategies to ameliorate it. Uh, I often admire some of the American associations for how more, how much more progressed they are than we are to the North. But nonetheless, there's a lot, lot of work to be done across North America for lawyers. And I just still maintain the view that lawyers including myself, didn't appreciate how hard this can be on a lawyer, especially litigators. And it's a subtle erosion that happens, you know, pervasively over time, perniciously. And I didn't even realize it was going on until all of a sudden I tasted a a relief from it. And that was it for me. Once I found that relief, I married alcohol. Uh, I was the best friend of alcohol as soon as they brought me that that sense of peace that I longed for because my life was in such conflict for so long. Well, now that you've transitioned away from practicing law, what uh, new opportunities and interests have you pursued? It sounds like you're uh, working with uh, law students and, and other, other folks. What, what have you been doing kind of now that you're retired? Well, I, it took me about a year post-retirement just to transition just to, just to sort of get my sea legs back and, and to stand up again and, and take stock or assess where I was and what I was going to do. I don't really futurize on what my plans are. I'm, I'm now 52. I'm not overly concerned about, uh, you know, realizing or undertaking a second career. I'm content to just, you know, wade for a while and, until something comes forward that I'm really interested in. But what I have gotten into is I've become a bit, a bit of an active voice for mental health awareness in our industry, in our profession. And that's led to uh, quite a bit of public speaking for me across Canada and now into the States for, uh, I mean, for example, this is uh, with your organization, this is wonderful. I also have something coming up with the New York Lawyers Association. So um, I think this is a topic of great interest, especially to legal associations or organizations. But interestingly, I don't have a lot of inquiries or queries from law firms. Uh, to come and speak to an individual law firm about my experience or what you know what's really going on out there, and I thought that was somewhat of a telling sign. Uh, so I'm hoping that changes, and I'm I'm hoping more interest is shown at the practical in the trenches level because I think that's really it's hard to get lawyers to listen to anything, right? It's you almost have to shock them to get them to listen, particularly litigators, and that's that's I guess the message I'm sending is. Here's my story. Uh, if it can happen to me, it can happen to you because I'm just like that too. And I had everything going for me and it all went south really quickly and really badly. And fortunately, I've landed on my feet. Financially, I'll be okay. And my wife's continuing to work to help with that. But, you know, it was not something I would have predicted six months before abruptly leaving my office. Well, your story is certainly a critical story that everyone needs to hear. 
Jason, as we kind of end uh, our time together, I wonder if you could let us know uh, and, you know, law firms in particular, if anyone wanted to reach out to you to book you for a speaking engagement or just wanted to learn more, where's the best way to find you? Thanks for that. And it's uh, www.mentallyspeaking.ca. Excellent. Well, Jason Ward, thank you so much for being on the show and and telling us about your story. Thanks, Dave. I, I greatly appreciate the opportunity to do so. Well, thanks to Jason Ward for joining us. And before our tip segment, we're going to take a quick break. Thank you to Disco for sponsoring Litigation Radio. Disco makes the law work better for everyone with cutting-edge solutions that leverage AI, cloud computing, and data analytics to help legal professionals accelerate e-discovery and document review. Learn more at csdisco.com. And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA litigation section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis to the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington, D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. What's your quick tip today? So today I wanted to provide a couple of tips about soft skills that I think are necessary for young litigators to survive in litigation. Right now, at this point of time, most firms or offices are saying goodbye to their summer associates or their interns for the summer. And so I thought that this would be a a great time to discuss these tips and maybe to refresh some of the more senior attorneys on what they can do as far as mentoring young litigators about soft skills. So I think, and again, this is just my opinion, that while technical advocacy skills are certainly necessary to thrive as litigators, it's really those soft skills um, that are often opaque that are essential. I think that the tech skills are generally at top of mind when mentoring young litigators and attorneys. But again, the soft skills are critical, in my opinion, to survival in our industry. And so the first tip I'll talk about as far as a soft skill is taking ownership. When I say ownership, I mean taking ownership of cases and clients. Litigators should chart the path to success by proactively pushing each case toward the final goal. And this is really one of my biggest pet peeve. So it's something that I'm consistently um, harping on to the younger associates at our firm, but taking ownership. Um, and that means, you know, keeping track of deadlines, anticipating legal roadblocks, peering around the corners for factual landmines or legal landmines, attending to the sometimes unpleasant details of discovery. No one likes discovery disputes, but, you know, doing those things all without being asked. And taking ownership could be being creative and clever, you know, coming up with an idea that the partner or even the client hasn't thought of, but will add value to the case and make the case run efficient and smoothly. But ultimately, it's really taking ownership. And no matter what your experience level, just knowing that the work product you generate will be the final result and will help move the matter forward. So taking ownership is my first soft skill that I think is crucial for young litigators to survive. The second tip I have is developing resilience. I think that this is equally critical to surviving as a litigator because no matter how much ownership you take, you will quickly learn that you just can't control everything. You know, despite our best efforts, 
we will lose motions. We will lose hearings. We will maybe even lose trials. We will maybe have an unsuccessful mediation or we'll inherit a fact pattern um, or case law that is just simply unhelpful, which I oftentimes have. And of course, you know, we'll certainly try to minimize or favorably reframe, you know, the situation, the case, the facts, the motion, things of that nature. But sometimes the judge and the jury simply won't go along with us and you lose. There's also, I think, importance in developing resilience resilience in receiving critical feedback from supervising attorneys. Sometimes you'll do an amazing job. Sometimes you'll do an okay job and there's room for improvement. And I think being in a place of being willing to accept that critical feedback, to accept it, to learn from it, and to do better the next time um, is certainly very important in our industry. So developing resilience is my second tip. You know, I think that being a litigator, it is not easy, especially at first, you know, when you're facing the day-to-day onslaught of life as a young litigator, it is sometimes all you can do really to just keep your head above water, keep track of deadlines, and to try to make all the cooks in the kitchen happy. But I think as you develop your technical advocacy skills, as you you know work on developing your writing, your research, it's also important to make sure that these soft skills, taking ownership and developing resiliency are also treated equally um, important in terms of your development. And I think that if young attorneys remember that, then they will be successful in this industry. And I think that if more seasoned attorneys remember that these sorts of skills are important and it's important to when mentoring to make sure that these soft skills are also in the forefront as much as the research and the writing and the other technical skills, then I think that that will help contribute to young litigators' success as well. So those are my tips. Well, great tips, Latasha. Thanks so much for being on the show today. And that's all we have for our show, and I'd love to hear your thoughts about today's episode. If you have comments or a question you'd like for me to answer on an upcoming show, you can contact me at dscriven-young at pecklaw.com and connect with me on social. I'm at AttorneyDSY on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also connect with the ABA litigation section on those platforms as well. But as much as I'd like to connect with you online, nothing beats meeting in person at one of our next litigation section events. So please make plans to join us at the Women in Litigation Joint CLE Conference in San Diego, taking place November 1st through the 3rd. Join us as we highlight women leading for success in the courtroom, in the judiciary, and in the profession. Programming will focus on trial skills, insurance litigation, products liability litigation, and securities litigation. Connect with leading litigators, judges, and in-house counsel from around the country. To find out more and for registration information, go to ambar.org slash litigate her. That's ambar.org slash litigate H-E-R. If you like the show, please help spread the word by sharing a link to this episode with a friend or through a post on social and invite others to join the show and community. If you want to leave a review over at Apple Podcasts, it's incredibly helpful. Even a quick rating over at Spotify is super helpful as well. And finally, I want to quickly thank some folks who make this show possible. Thanks to Michelle Oberts, who's on staff with the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thank you, Rich. Thanks also goes out to my fellow co-chairs of the litigation section's audio contact committee, Josh Jones and Tyler True. Thank you to the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.